Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex issues facing our society and bring our findings to you every other week. Our promise to you is to bring honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what we can factually support, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human and our blind spots and biases will show through, but our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Due to the nature of our podcast, some of the things that we talk about can get pretty heavy and might even be divisive. We try to lighten the mood and avoid too much doom and gloom, but we still suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Now, it's time to talk about the spookiest topic yet, just in time for Halloween. Yes, it's everyone's favorite electoral function, the Electoral College. Welcome to our fireside. today's topic momentarily, but before we do that, we'd like to take a minute to talk about some really productive conversations that we've had this week. It's kind of a proof of concept for why we started this whole podcast in the first place. I think last week, or maybe it was the week before, I shared the story of my friend who put up this meme talking about how they didn't care who you voted for, they care about how you treated the person who did the voting. Didn't respond to the actual conversation I had with her about that. But uh, this week we ended up talking again about a, a different topic and really did get to a point where we were able to recognize where we were in agreement first before we diverged. And that was not something that had happened prior. That was actually a really, really big step. Uh, so that made me pretty happy. She also said that she would vote for me for president. So I'm just saying I am eligible to run in three years and two months. That's right. So what's the age of eligibility again? It's 35. 35, right? yeah. Oh, well, I mean, you know, a lady never tells her age, but let's just say I'm super eligible to run. <laughs> so that's fun. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's fine. It's fine. No, I also had a really great conversation with a couple of my coworkers. Um, I live in a fairly conservative area and I work with fairly conservative people. Um, and so when I mentioned that I had a podcast and they asked for the link to try to listen to it, I was really hesitant uh, because though we do our very best not to bring bias to the table when we record this, it's... We obviously do. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's hard not it's hard not to acknowledge that we both lean further left than uh, these folks that I work with. Mm -hmm. And so they asked for the link and I, I shared it with them. And immediately I got feedback from them that they were actively listening and thinking through the things that we said. And we've said it before. We don't care if you agree with us. That's not the purpose of this podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to talk about big, complicated things in a way that anybody could discuss them and communicate their thoughts and their feelings and hopefully find common ground. 
So these coworkers that I have who are far more conservative than I am were actually engaging with the podcast and asking really thoughtful questions and asking for clarification on things that they didn't understand. And while we might never agree on the outcome of these conversations, it's really refreshing and encouraging to know that if we can come to the table as decent people who are willing to listen, we can at least make progress on some of these things. Yes, and what the world needs now is progress, sweet progress. Doesn't exactly. Flow as well. Doesn't flow as well. No, but it's but, far more meaningful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Exactly. Okay, so seeing as how the 2020 election is literally right around the corner, we're <laughs> recording this in late October. Yeah, by the we, time this launches, it will be eight days. I'm, uh, I'm stressed. I'm stressed. Mm-hmm. Everyone mm-hmm. in the country is stressed about this election. Um, so we, we thought that we would be of service to the American people by breaking down the Electoral College in this episode. This behind-the-scenes process has a long and actually really interesting history in American elections and in elections in the past 20 years. Um, it's raised some serious questions about its continued value and how we should proceed with American democracy. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about how the Electoral College works in general. You can find that information in a million places right now. Uh, What we want to focus on in this episode is the background stuff only we nerds know. (laughs) You couldn't see me, but I definitely just clenched my fist there. (laughs) Power. So we're going to focus on why. Why was it created in the first place? How many different versions of the process have been at play? You know, what kind of variations do we see in the system today? We also want to talk about some of the arguments in support of and against the Electoral College and how this process might play a significant factor in this year's election. So before we jump into how this whole process works, let's look at how the American people feel about the Electoral College. As noted by the Congressional Digest in June 2020, which they compiled data from the Pew Research Center, at that point in time, 58% of adults polled believed that the Constitution should be amended so that the presidential candidate who receives the most votes nationwide wins. 40% would prefer to keep the current system in which the candidate who receives the most electoral college votes wins the election. Um, The number in favor of that amendment, actually changing the Constitution to get rid of the electoral college, dropped from 62% in 2011 to 51% in 2016, and then it has climbed again since. Hmm. You may remember that in 2016, the popular vote and the electoral college vote uh, had two different winners. Um, And obviously because of our constitution, we go with the electoral college, uh, but the current president of the United States did not win the popular vote. Also women- repeated claims to the contrary. Exactly. There is, just for the record, there were several voter fraud investigations launched after the 2016 election that were run by the party in power, Republican Party, that were unable to find any significant voter fraud in the 2016 election, which means that his claims about having won the popular election, if not for millions of undocumented immigrants voting, (laughs) are completely unsubstantiated. (laughs) Just putting it out there. 
Hey, I mean, we actually have a whole podcast about that, right? We, I think we yeah. mentioned that in the mail-in vote podcast. Yeah. We talked about the fact that there has never been evidence of significant enough voter fraud to affect any national election. It's worth noting that women and younger voters are also more likely to support changing the electoral college system. That's probably because the electoral college system was never created with women, minorities, or younger voters in mind. But we'll get to that when we talk about history. It's not surprising, and I don't even know that's really interesting, but it feels good to have my gut instinct like um, validated Validating. here. Yes. So when we break it down into partisan terms, in 2012, about half of Republicans, 54%, polled were in favor of amending the Constitution to get rid of the Electoral College. Today, that number has dropped to about 32%. However, in 2012, about 70% of Democrats, or people who identified as leaning toward the Democratic uh, side of things, were in favor of changing the system, and today that number has risen to 81%. So what you'll notice is that these numbers pretty closely align with whose party was quote-unquote, winning at the time, and who would love to see the system change to give their party a fighting chance. Yeah. So generally, when the system's working in your favor, you don't necessarily want to change it. Uh, but when you lose, sometimes you're more willing to consider changing it. Like in 2000 and 2016, when the popular vote did not determine the president. Interestingly, uh, Republicans, both time, that won those elections, and part of the argument for why the Electoral College unfairly supports Republicans. Interesting. It's, yeah. I'm, that actually, we'll touch on it a little bit later. I think the actual like Electoral College bias shifts over time, but currently yeah. it seems to be like five points in favor of uh, Republicans, I think. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Uh, so, pop quiz time. True or false, the Electoral College has existed in its current form since the founding of the United States. Oh, I love tests. I love tests so much. I'm such a nerd. I'm gonna say it's false. Whoa! It's almost like you researched this entire thing with me. What? And studied for this test. Because, yeah, it is, that's definitely false. Always a lot of people's. Tests. Always. <laughs> Please. A lot of people seem to think that the Electoral College in its current form is some sort of like concrete foundational aspect of the United States. But the reality is that we only get a very basic framework in the Constitution. Well, let's take a trip down memory lane, shall we? In uh, 1787, as the delegates to the Constitutional Convention wrestled with the task of putting down on paper the ideals for which they had been fighting for 10 years, one of the most fundamental questions they had to answer was how to choose the president. Right, and at the time, like, no other country in the world trusted its populace to select its chief officer. Like most of what would eventually go on to define America, this was completely uncharted territory. The founding thinkers had a deep-rooted mistrust of executive power, having just waged a bloody war to win independence from a king that they considered to be a tyrant, and nobody wanted to have to do that again every time we needed a new president. But, I mean, that was kind of all that they agreed on in this process. One dominant group, though, was set against letting the people elect the president by a straight popular vote. 
George Mason, who was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention from Virginia, said, It would be unnatural to refer the choice of a proper character for chief magistrate to the people, as it would be to refer a trial of colors to a blind man. Ouch. Thought real highly of the common man back then. I know, right? Although some of them thought that potential voters lacked access to the information that they would need to be fully informed about the candidates, especially in rural areas. I'm going to let my dog stop barking. They suggested that these folks would simply cast a vote for a candidate in their home state, which would lead to domination by large states like New York and Massachusetts. Some of them feared the possibility of a democratic mob steering the country astray. And these narratives are not unfamiliar to us today, right? We hear people in the Midwest complain all the time that if the presidency was divided by if the presidency was decided by popular vote, California and New York City would control the entire country. At least I hear that all the time, living no, right I, smack I, in the middle of the country. I heard it too when I lived there and I still hear it through Facebook. They never seem to consider that if you exclude metropolitan area and just look at the cities, 50%, 15, 15, 15.5% of the country's population lives in the 50 largest cities in the nation. And then the remaining 85% don't. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, one, one, I mean, we've talked about it multiple times. American history is full of these narratives that just get rewashed and put into more modern terminology as we go on, right? Other people were worried that a populist president appealing directly to the people could command dangerous amounts of power and that the people might very well be misled by designing men, which I thought that was my favorite term in this whole, researching this whole thing. And still others suggested that a popular election would not lead to a consensus on a single national candidate after Washington left office. So ultimately, the problem of how to balance the presidential election process, it boiled down to how to avoid giving a minority population too much power without having their voices quashed entirely. James Madison summarized the problem nicely. The right, this is a quote, the right of suffrage is a fundamental article in Republican constitutions. The regulation of it is, at the same time, a task of peculiar delicacy. Allow the right to vote exclusively to property owners, and the rights of persons may be oppressed. Extend it equally to all, and the rights of property owners may be overruled by a majority without property. That also reveals exactly who the Founding Fathers considered important here they were (laughs) very concerned about the landed gentry yes not having a a a voice which is kind of silly because the root of that argument is basically like since we have land our votes are more important than your votes right and um and they should at least balance out with the uh with the masses Uh, (laughs) the non the non-landowning masses Mm. Well, and if you think about it now, like you hear that, you hear that narrative, and it's not necessarily about the piece of land that you own, but Mm -mm. like back in 1787, your land was your business for the most part, unless you were a shop owner or something like that. So the rights of business owners 
in the current political climate are at the top of our discussion points. Always have been. And it's the same with the conversation about the modern conversation about the Electoral College is the the urban urbanites uh, would overrule all of the rural voters, you know, the coastal elites. You hear that one all the time, which I live on the coast and I wish I were elite. I work so (laughs) hard to be elite and nothing happens. So I just, yeah, someday, someday I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. And we can talk about that in a whole new episode some other time. Anyway, back on track. Alexander Hamilton envisioned that the choice of president should be made by men most capable of analyzing the qualities adapted to the station, end quote. According to him, quote, small number of persons selected by their fellow citizens from the general mass will be most likely to possess the information and discernment requisite to such complicated investigations, end quote. James Madison argued that these electors would express the will of the people if the people chose the electors. Put in more modern language, Hamilton rationalized that a group of citizens would be most likely to nominate a person from among their peers that they considered smart enough to weigh all the qualifications of the presidential nominees and make a good choice on the group's behalf. Basically, it's like when you're out with your group of friends and you're all like, what do you want to eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? I don't know. None of us know what we want to eat. But you know what? James over here always picks a good restaurant and knows us well enough to decide what we should eat. What'll it be, James? That's exactly. it. That's the, the Electoral College in a nutshell. You're welcome. Put that right. on your finals. I mean, basically, we could just end the episode right here. That's it. Done. We're not we'll see you in to. two weeks. We're, oh, okay. We're going to continue to regale you with yes. such amazing analysis. <laughs> Oh, we have, uh, I think we have 20 more pages to get through. (laughs) Single-spaced people, buckle up. Yeah, so um, there's a historian that I I love to listen to. Her name is Dr. Heather Cox Richardson. And then there's an excellent chance that if you spend any time at Facebook at all and you are concerned at all about politics, you have encountered something that she has written or a video that she has made. And she was talking about the Electoral College in one of her videos recently, and she basically explained electors this way. She said, the people in each district were, the the founders anticipated that they would choose basically the most cosmopolitan person that they knew. Somebody who had money and resources and traveled a lot, whether they were a business person or um, a politician of some sort or another, who knew everyone and would be able to make a great decision about who could represent them the best in national politics. So what you're saying is they wanted James or they expected James to be a rich white man. Well, of course. There there was... Oh. I mean, I think we can just say here at this point, blanket across the board, anywhere in the history of the Electoral College... Or any time that we're talking about what the Founding Fathers wanted this system to be, the only consideration was for white men. Sometimes they mention non-landed white men, people who didn't own property, uh, but they were not even at the top of the consideration. Yeah, they're like, oh yeah, those guys too. Yeah, 
Because also they're white men. So, sure. But this whole system was created by and for white men because they were the only people who mattered. So now we've gotten that out of the way. (laughs) Gosh, man. Just flashback to our first like five episodes, which are talking about how this whole country was established by white men and maybe all the laws that they wrote probably were written to benefit them directly. Crazy. Right. The original intention of the Constitution was to protect white men? Question mark? Oh, gosh. That quote, that soundbite right there is going to come back in 10 years during our campaign and bite us in the butt. That's okay. People will look at me and be like, oh, of course she said that. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. They expect me to say it. It's fine. Whatever. It's fine. Okay, so not everyone fully agreed with Hamilton, right? And out of these debates, the delegates came to a compromise that was centered around the idea of electoral intermediaries. And to assuage both concerns about populist voting and the tyranny of the elite, these intermediaries wouldn't be picked by Congress or elected by the people. Sorry, James. Instead, the states would each appoint independent electors who would cast the actual ballots for the presidency. In reality, the founders assumed that most elections would ultimately be decided by neither the people nor the electors, but by the House of Representatives. See, as a part of this electoral plan, they decided that if no single candidate wins a majority of the electoral votes, then the decision should go to the House of Representatives, wherein each state's representatives would come together and huddle and then cast one vote on behalf of their state. That was not a super popular solution, by the way. We'll get into what Thomas Jefferson thought about that in a little bit. He had thoughts about all kinds of things. I agree with his thought on this one, though, so... We'll we'll allow. This compromise didn't really appease everyone. Shocker, I just said that. In 1787, roughly 40% of people living in the southern states were black slaves who could not vote. Madison, who was from Virginia, where enslaved people made up about 60% of the population, knew that neither a direct presidential election nor one with electors dispersed based on a state's population of free white residents would fly in the South. So his arguments on behalf of the Southern states led to what became known as the Three-Fifths Compromise. Now that might be knocking some cobwebs loose from a lot of (laughs) listeners right now because... That is one of the few historical terms that has been lodged in my brain since like fifth grade, I think, when we first started talking about it. The Three-Fifths Compromise. Basically, it stated that enslaved black people would be counted toward the population of a state as three-fifths of a person for the purpose of allocating representatives and electors and calculating federal taxes. Three-fifths, though, like, A, fractions are dumb, and two... Why that one? Like, that's hard to multiply. I mean, I mean like, they're like, ah, half. I don't know. That's a little too low. Two thirds. Ah, no, that's a little too high. Let's go for three fifths, I guess. Three fifths. Right just split it right in the middle. Ay, ay, ay. Okay. So there was one significant flaw in this plan that historians and activists generally agree on, right? This whole plan to elect the president. There were no political parties in 1787. After the unanimous election of George Washington as the nation's first president, the founders figured that consequent elections would feature many candidates who would divide up the electoral pie into tiny chunks without a clear majority winner, thus 
giving Congress a chance to pick the president. But as soon as national political parties formed and the number of presidential candidates shrank, their whole plan fell apart. I mean, to date, only two S two. To date, only two U.S. elections have been decided by the House, and the last one was in 1824. Interestingly, by 1824, only six states still allowed their electors to be chosen by the state legislators. Remember, that was how they were originally supposed to be uh, appointed. All but six states by that point allowed them to be selected by popular vote. In the next election, only one state, South Carolina, had not transitioned to selecting electors based on the popular vote in the state. South Carolina held out until 1880. Way to hang in there. Right? Man, keeping that, keeping that candle lit. Um, carrying the torch. Carrying the flame. That's the yes. one. I found, the, I found it. Carrying the flame. But from 1880, all electors in every state have been chosen based on the popular vote on election day. Now that is not necessarily how they are allocated. This is where things get a little funky. Originally, the electors in the college did not actually vote for president and vice president. Originally, the Constitution provided for the electors to cast two votes for president. One of those votes could not be for a candidate from their state. This would ensure that no hometown heroes dominated the election, one of the problems that came up earlier. The person with the most votes would be president, and the runner-up would be vice president. This worked all the way up until 1796, when political parties suddenly became a thing. <laughs> a terrible monstrosity. John Adams of the Federalist Party won the presidential election, while his political opponent Democratic-Republican, and that is not a mistake, that's the actual party name, Democratic-Republican Party candidate Thomas Jefferson won the vice presidency. That would be like a Republican getting the presidency and a Democrat becoming vice president in the modern day. I don't know if those party descriptions are exactly right, but you get the point. They hated each other. Obviously, having a president and a vice president from opposing political parties is problematic. Fast forward to the next election, 1800, four years later, another constitutional crisis. This time, the Democratic-Republican Party nominated Jefferson again, but they also nominated Aaron Burr for vice president. Remember, there is no stipulation for how these votes are counted. So in a plot twist that was only outdone by like 2020 itself, <laughs> both Jefferson and Burr got the same amount of electoral votes. Since the ballots did not distinguish between votes for president and votes for vice president, the Constitution did not supply a remedy. There was no way to really break this tie aside from sending it right back to the House of Representatives. Okay, so just... Just to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly. There was a tie between votes for the president hmm. and the vice president? Yes. I they feel this... like this is a problem that they should have seen coming. Right. But they didn't. I mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess you got to test the system. 
to make sure I, it works, right? I, sure. I mean, I guess technically they did see this problem coming because they were like, well, in cases where there's no clear winner, it goes to the House of Representatives. And they did plan on the House being who actually appointed the president. Like, that was their sort of, like... Uh, it wasn't really cloak and dagger. It was just sort of like their... You know, this is what's really going to happen. We don't really trust the electors. That's true. Sort of thing. That's true. Okay, so keeping with this story here, you might remember from about two minutes ago that the Federalist Party won the last election in 1796, which means that they had just lost their bid for re-election. So they were understandably upset here, right? Even so, they decided to play fair and break the tie as a matter of due course so that the country could run smoothly. This was back when our founding fathers and early politicians really did generally have the best interest of the country in mind. I mean, at least in some timeline, right? That's not our own. I would like to think this, right? Yeah, not in this version of America did right. that happen. No, in this timeline, politicians be politicking, right? So the Federalists latched on to the opportunity to embarrass the Democratic Republicans because apparently Congress has never been full of adults. And they essentially forced a deadlock in the decision-making process, leaving Jefferson and Burr still tied and continuing this very strange crisis. This happened 35 times. 35. And then finally, six days later, and fearing for the future of the newly crafted union, James A. Baird, the representative from Delaware, finally broke ranks and announced that he would abstain from the vote. And his actions encouraged other Federalists to stop being idiots. I mean, to also refrain from the vote. And altogether, James Baird and the Federalists from South Carolina, Maryland, and Vermont cast blank ballots, breaking the tie and giving Jefferson enough votes to win the presidency. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? I wish that sounded like an anomaly. I know. I can see it happening like today. I could could literally see C-SPAN breathlessly broadcasting the first vote. Right. And maybe the second vote. And then like 35 votes later, just being like, we don't know what's going on anymore. It's, right. there they go. It's a tie. And then so finally on the 36th vote, ugh. It works. Like some dude behind a desk with a tie that's like all loose and bags under his eyes. And he's like, is this ever going to end? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Just move to Canada. It'll be fine. Obviously. <laughs> this whole situation, these two elections back to back... They highlighted some major problems with the whole process. So under Jefferson, Congress passed the 12th Amendment, which required electors to cast separate ballots for president and vice president. It retained many of the original provisions of um, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 3, which is what originally stipulated how votes were cast. And it added some other provisions, among them that no individual constitutionally ineligible to the office of president would be eligible to serve as vice president. So that would kind of seem to preclude any modern two-term president becoming a vice president, but not so fast. I thought this was really interesting. So because of some weird quirks 
of the wording of the 12th and the 22nd Amendment, which is the one that sets term limits, we don't actually know, or at least there's been no legal conclusion, um, about whether or not a two-term president could go on to serve as vice president. So, for example, Obama really could be Joe Biden's VP. Remember, like, if, if they so desired, at least as far as legal precedent has determined, because it's just never been challenged. I'm not saying anybody would necessarily want that. I just remember the jokes about it when Biden came out in front of in the primaries. I just thought that was, I thought that was interesting. Something I learned here because I was like, I don't know, I didn't know how that would work. So yeah, there's technically nothing saying he can't do it. <laughs> it's just, it would be a real sticky wicket to work that one out. So with some relatively minor changes here and there, like the transition from district by district selection of electors to general ticket selection, which we will talk about later, and the addition of the 14th Amendment in which Section 2, the only important, well, not the only important thing, but one of the most important things about the 14th Amendment is that Section 2 basically says that a state's representation in the House of Representatives is reduced proportionate to how many male citizens 21 or older have been disenfranchised in that state, um, which is just a really complicated way of saying if you take the vote away from eligible voters, at the time it was written it was male voters, obviously, because women didn't have the franchise, um, if you take the vote away from them, you're also going to lose representatives in the House because we have to have some means to punish you. You should allow everybody to vote. Of course, it makes exception in the case of rebellion or other crime. That's the other <laughs> umbrella term, just other crime. So, yeah, a lot of problems, a lot of problems there still, but I uh, found that interesting. Anyway, so that's the essentially... This is the system we find ourselves with today. Uh, so how how does this system work? I mean, there's really no better way to sum up the electoral process than looking at it in the way that it's explained to Congress, right? Time for U.S. Politics 101. I'm going to preface this whole section by saying that this is a relatively high-level overview of things. We're intentionally leaving out some deadlines and official markers for things like the safe harbor period, for example. Uh, but we do promise, however, that if two weeks from now it becomes more important to take a deeper dive into the minutia of the electoral process, please, Jesus, don't let it be, we'll hit that with our usual vigor. Okay. Now, most people know that the United States is a democracy. But what, what the I know, right? Gas. I'm shocked. But what the discerning leader listenership that we have cultivated here on this podcast surely knows is that we are not a pure democracy. In a pure democracy, every citizen would have the chance to vote on every decision and every action taken by the government. Clearly, this would be catastrophically complicated and we would never ever have made it past chucking bricks of tea into that one harbor that one time. Instead, we're established as a democratic republic or representative democracy. 
we are neither a pure republic or a pure democracy, but we implement varying shades of each concept at different levels of the government. In short, what this means for the voting population is that their votes don't usually directly count on issues of government business. Rather, they elect someone to represent their interests in the government and essentially cast votes in their place. Thus, we have the House of Representatives and the Senate, and at local levels, things like school boards and city councils that fulfill that function. Okay, enough civics. <laughs> We're kidding. This whole session is civics. So back to our elections. The very first step of the process. They function in the same way, basically. Voters in the United States don't actually vote for the president. We actually choose presidential electors, known collectively as the Electoral College. I know we've only been talking about it for 40 minutes. You are shocked that they're, that's what they're called. Um, and actually, we don't even choose the Electoral College directly anymore. That's that general ticket. Yep. These are the people who are actually responsible for choosing the president and the vice president, the Electoral College. We know that every year... Every party, basically both parties, but technically every party that is running in the presidential race, every party nominates their candidates for president and vice president. In every state where they are entitled to be on the ballot, these parties also nominate a group called a slate or a ticket of candidates for the office of elector. Here's some nerdy-ish that some people don't know. What determines how many electors per party, and therefore how many electoral votes, a state gets? Oh, I know this one. It's a fun little thing called the U.S. Census. Da, da, da. And that's exactly why it's so distressing that this year's census got cut short. We'll address the census issue a little bit more later as in how it relates to the Electoral College. But in short, it's highly likely that this census will not accurately reflect the population in any given area, and therefore we won't have the best idea of how to allocate resources to each state. How does the census determine electors for the Electoral College? Glad you asked, my imaginary friend. The census determines how many representatives a state gets in the House of Representatives, and the number of electors for each state is equal to the number of members that state has in Congress. So for Virginia, for example, hmm. There's the standard two senators that every state has, and then 11 representatives in the House for a total of 13, which means that Virginia has a total of 13 members of Congress, and therefore 13 electoral college votes. So, I hate the fact that the government words things like this, but that's the government. On the Tuesday, <laughs> after the first Monday in November... So this year it's November 3rd. Don't forget to vote for Christ's sakes, people. Just, just do it. Do it now. <clears throat> the Tuesday after the first Monday in November, the general voting population sallies forth to cast a single vote for their preferred candidates. Or, more accurately, their preferred candidates' slate of electors as determined by the candidate's party. <laughs> Maine and Nebraska are the only two states who do not allocate their electors based on the winner of the popular vote. 
they use a, uh, a district system, which is actually the original system, uh, where the statewide popular vote winner gets two electors, then the winner of each district gets an elector. It's just more granular, a better way to represent the winner of the popular vote, smaller chunks. Uh, every other state and the District of Columbia use the winner-take-all system, where they just throw all the electors to the popular vote winner in that state. This is why we never actually know the winner of the election on election night. We cannot stress this enough. It is not unusual to not know the official winner of the election on election night. That is standard. That is normal. Do not let anyone tell you otherwise this year and try to declare a, pre a preemptive victory of some sort, right? We're all sitting around, we're all watching the news, and we all love to see the states get lit up in our preferred color. But what actually happens, what is actually normal, is that electors assemble in their respective states on the Monday after the second Wednesday in December. <sighs> this year it'll be the 14th. And at this assemblage, the electors are expected to vote for the candidates they represent. But very importantly, they are not constitutionally or probably otherwise legally obligated to vote for the people they represent. The electors cast their vote, hopefully following the will of the people who voted, and then the electoral college ceases to exist. Poof, never to be seen again until four years later. The Constitution hasn't changed its mind concerning this process since 1787, though as we have talked about, there have been some tweaks and there have been some efforts made at amending it. But there is one major loophole that has ensured that the application of the Electoral College has changed in the last 223 years. The Constitution says nothing about how the states should allot their electoral votes. We've talked about this a couple of times now. 26 states and the District of Columbia attempt to legally or ethically require electors to vote for the candidates of the political party their elector represents. Though that effort has been met with some pushback, in 1952, the Supreme Court held in Ray v. Blair that political parties actually could exercise state delegated authority to require candidates for the office of elector to pledge to support the party's presidential and vice presidential nominees. The court did not, however, rule on the constitutionality of state laws that bind electors. Some constitutional thinkers suggest that these efforts to bind electors are constitutionally unenforceable and that Electors remain free agents who may vote for any candidate they choose, regardless of the promises required of them. And this is another reason that Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the court is so significant in the context of the election. Being an originalist, she is more likely, note I said not guaranteed, number one, she followed RBG's precedent and did not give any previews as to how she might vote in any particular court case. I will say this. Ginsburg did actually answer <laughs> a lot of questions about her thoughts on stuff. She did. I just... I'm not saying personal, that that was a well-coached play. Yeah. And I but I'm personal, not saying that. I have a personal issue with the 
equivalency of Amy Coney Barrett and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think I it's know. a false equivalency that's it is being a, played It's up. a pretty false. It is. But regardless of how you feel Moving about on. her person, right? <laughs> one of the reasons that she is so essential to a conservative dominated court right now is that she is, in her perspective of interpreting the Constitution, an originalist. So she is more likely to interpret the Constitution in a way that aligns with the idea that electors should be free to choose based on their perception of the people's best interest. Remember, when the framers wrote this, that was their goal, right? Not just the will of the masses, but James, who knows what we would really like to eat. Right. So whenever an elector doesn't vote for a person, they are, quote, supposed to, based on the vote, either because they think they know better than all the people who voted for whatever reason or because they're just terrible people. Um, they're called a faithless elector. Since the 1948 presidential election, 16 faithless or unfaithful electors have cast votes for candidates other than those to whom they were pledged. And one cast a blank ballot, which you kind of got to respect. I'm just, I mean, um, if, it, if, it worked, if it worked in the deadlock, it'll right? work here, right? I mean, I would rather, if they're not going to vote for who they're pledged, I'd rather they just not vote, which is, I guess, what that guy did. Anyway, seven of them defected in 2016. That cost Clinton five votes and Trump two. Not enough to alter the election outcomes, though there was actually an effort in 2016 to convince 37 total electors to defect in order to force a contingent election in Congress. <laughs> it would have been wild like, it would have been crazy in 2000. It was already crazy in 2016. I cannot even imagine what it would have been like if that oh, had dude. actually happened. It would have been um, so crazy. It, <laughs> more. More. Uh, yeah. Um, so this idea is generally not popular among the people, and it never really has been. In the election of 1796... One presidential elector cast his vote for president contrary to his instruction as a chosen elector of the Federalist Party, leading one citizen to say, Do I choose Samuel Miles, the elector, to determine for me whether John Adams or Thomas Jefferson is the fittest man for president? No. I choose him to act, not to think. End quote. Once the voters vote and the electors are assigned, that's it, right? We know now the winner of the election. Ta-da. Just kidding again. Dang. Nope. That's not how it works. All tricky this episode. Wait, so it's like yeah. December 14th this year. We still don't know the official winner of the election. Is that what, I, is that what yeah. you're saying? Nobody writes it down in the official notebook in which they keep track of how many presidents we've had. Even after December 14th. Yeah, that's not what happens. In fact... It's not until January 6th of 2021 that the Congress will count and declare the electoral votes and therefore the actual official winner. And then somebody will write it down in a notebook somewhere. The official notebook. The official notebook. That's right. It says like an eraser. Do you remember? Did you ever do that when you were a kid? Like take your eraser and erase the color off the front of your notebook? Yeah. 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 That's probably what that notebook looks like Legit. in case you were wondering. Legit. 90s kids all the way. What? Um, okay, so at that point, whichever candidate achieves 
the coveted 270 electoral votes out of a possible 538 wins the presidency. Again, what this means for us Americans this year is that we need to remember that we never know the official winner of the election until roughly two weeks before the inauguration. That's why the inauguration is in January, right? Whatever the news stations say are based on what should happen based on poll results, but these are not guaranteed, especially this year when there is a possibility that the person leading on election night in November is not actually the one winning the popular vote in the state. There's a surge of votes that comes in that's issued by mail, especially this year, and if that concerns you, just remember, we made a really cool episode about voting by mail a few weeks ago, and that might actually help you alleviate any fears or concerns you might have or give you good talking points if you're trying to convince people to vote by mail. Anyway, these votes can and will be received after November 3rd. They'll be valid. They will be counted. And they may actually change the projected results coming out on election night. This is not fraud. This is not stealing an election. There is a normal window of time for these things to be taken care of, and the official winner of the election is not determined until Congress counts the vote. You good? I'm good. Just saying. It's the government, people. Since when have they ever managed to actually do something in one day? All right. Let's circle back here for a minute and talk about this contingent election that we mentioned earlier. If the presidential or the vice presidential candidates fail to receive the needed majority of the Electoral College votes, the 12th Amendment provides that the House of Representatives should choose the president and the Senate should choose the vice president. In a contingent election, each state's representatives come together to cast a single vote for president in the House, while each senator casts a single vote for vice president. Critics of contingent election process generally argue that it moves the election of the vice president and the president one step further away from the voters. Members of the House and the Senate are free to exercise their choice without regard for the winners of the popular vote in their states or districts or in the nation as a whole. Uh, by granting each state an equal vote, these critics claim that a contingent election does not account for the great differences in state population or the number of popular votes cast in each state. Also, the 12th Amendment does not give the District of Columbia the option to participate in a contingent election in the House and Senate. While the ratification of the 23rd Amendment in 1961 granted the District of Columbia three votes in the Electoral College, the nation's capital would be effectively disenfranchised in a contingent election because it sends no senators nor representatives to Congress. Defenders of this process like to remind us that a contingent election is a break glass only in case of an emergency procedure and has only been required once in the 54 presidential elections since the ratification of the 12th Amendment. But still, it's a principal thing. It's the principalities it of the matter. It's just, right. it's very undemocratic at that point. Yeah. I mean, there is some poetic justice, though, to the idea that in the case of a contingent election, Washington, D.C. would have no representation. That's, that's kind of true. Don't let, for all of our listeners, like two of you in D.C., we don't mean that. Go get your statehood. No. Totally support you. Go get it. 
<laughs> we, you exactly. deserve representation. You do. I'm sorry that you get lumped in with all those jerks. Okay, so now you know where the Electoral College came from and how it works. It's time to talk controversy. Because there's not enough right? in 2020. Okay. Exactly. I mean, maybe controversy is a strong word, right? It's more like academic disagreement and then general bluster by us lay folks. Love it. <laughs> the criticisms of the Electoral College process fall generally into one of two categories. First, there is the decided philosophical quandary that the existing system provides a less than fully democratic indirect election of the president and the vice president. And the second group, which we're going to talk about first, kind of, addresses the perceived constitutional, legislative, and political structural flaws in the system. We're going to go through them individually, but keep in mind, this is going to be pretty general. Yeah, uh, we are... Uh... <laughs> oh boy, we are like halfway through our show notes at this point and an hour into the show. So seriously, we could have done a whole series on this, easy peasy, but we wanted yeah. to get a whole like nice little package out before the actual election. So maybe... If y'all love this so much, you want us to do more, we will. Anyway, so let's talk about, let's start, I guess, with the big picture arguments for the Electoral College. One significant general argument for the Electoral College is that it allows for the continuation of balanced federalism, which allows distinctive and individual communities to join together for a greater good without losing their essential distinctiveness and individuality. Proponents believe the Electoral College helps maintain the system of checks and balances in American government. It helps preserve the two-party system and require a president that best represents the nation as a whole. These things, they say, provide for the continued stability of America's governance. They argue that though the Founding Fathers could never have imagined the expansive nature of the United States, to which the system would eventually be applied, the system has survived since 1787 and adapted to our ever-changing physical and political landscapes. Proponents of the Electoral College champion the fact that it's designed to require a candidate to campaign and appeal to the entire nation, not just one faction or region. Political scientist Michael Ullman pointed out that no candidate can win without a broad national coalition assembled state by state, yet compelled to transcend narrow geographic, economic, and social interests. The college, they say, does not diminish the equality of people's votes. Instead, it provides safeguards against candidates that only cater to those they need to win. They argue that eliminating the electoral college could easily change that fact. The sentiment in the, the generally pro-electoral college camp is that no system of electing a president will ever be perfect, but the electoral college system includes protections for all people, from all backgrounds, which is more important than the appearance of a direct popular election. Another contention for the electoral college is that its elimination would destroy the two-party system that has evolved from it. 
Though it may not have been the intention of the Founding Fathers, supporters propose that the two-party system acts as a balance in the presidential election process that parallels those found within the Electoral College itself, as well as the nature of the American federal government, like the two-house legislature. Right. Those in favor argue that the two-party system has given the United States a political stability unrivaled in most democracies. They argue that historically, multi-party systems had divided nations, destabilizing them beyond the point of having a functioning and successful government. One example that they like to give is the Weimar Republic in Germany, which they say had so many political parties that no one could win a majority, causing each party to abandon established forms of government and develop its own, thus destroying the cohesiveness of the nation. I'm not going to point out all the other problems that it had. I'm just going to keep going. Here. Yeah, that's right. Chug along. Though the ability for any person to run under any party or platform might sound enticing, supporters of the current system claim that single-issue interest groups could raise enough money and enough votes to get their candidates into office. Diversion from a two-party system might also produce a situation where voters in a single state are able to elect a very popular governor to the White House simply because of the state's large population and financial resources. I just want to comment on that really quick. That's because one of the problems with a, or one of the perceived problems with a a popular vote is that opponents to it don't necessarily think anybody would get a majority of the votes, which means that we would have to set the bar lower for the winner. So like California with its massive population might be able to cross that threshold by itself. Anyway, additionally, in support, in support of the uh, electoral college system, um, it would also, it would be more difficult to determine who has won a majority of the vote or a plurality in a in a popular vote situation. The winning candidate could receive an extremely small percentage of the total vote, which is hardly representative of a majority of the populace. So again, if if the plurality, if the threshold needed to win the election decreased you know, proportionate to the amount of people in the election, which is to say, say, you know, you had two candidates running, you would need 51% of the vote to win because there's only two of you. But if you had 10 candidates running, you would need something like 11% of the votes to actually win or more than the others, assuming everybody else got 10 and they were all divided equally and all that fun stuff. Because, you know, there's more ways for people to vote. It, I can see where they're coming from with that argument. As we will discuss later, I think it's a ridiculously easy problem to solve. And that's the thing. Like, We're going to keep going and we're going to talk about the folks who generally argue against the idea of the Electoral College. But all of these arguments for and against, most of them do not include propositions for amendment, right? So we're not talking about that middle ground that might enable us to retain the best qualities of either system. We're just talking pro and con at this point. Right. That's a whole other bucket of discussions. Yeah. Alternatives the, to the Electoral College. Yeah. Seriously, the the pod, <laughs> the episode about how to fix the Electoral College could be its own podcast, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Ideas abound. I'll just leave it at that. Exactly. So. Okay. So I was in just the other say, corner. 
Right. Oh, keep... I, no, this ties into that. I was just going to say, you know, we were talking about the two-party system. The idea of the two-party system isn't necessarily treasured by everybody, though. It's not a universally loved thing. So proponents who are using it as a, as a net positive of the Electoral College kind of ignore all the people who absolutely hate that. We'll talk about that more later. In the other corner, we've got those people who are arguing generally against the idea of the Electoral College. Most critics of the Electoral College believe that the system is outdated and needs to be replaced with a more direct process of selecting the nation's chief executive. The primary arguments against the Electoral College system fall into two general categories as well. First, it's not a directly democratic election. There's not a ton more to say about that argument. Even though the system was designed to be explicitly non-populist, many do argue that it's time to move to a direct election system. I mean, people are much more educated and we have a much broader system of information sharing at this point. And so there are people who definitely make the case that we, as a whole, are more capable of directly electing our chief executive. And then secondly, critics often point to potential advantages for one group or another because of the Electoral College. And we should note that these perceived advantages run the gamut of political philosophy and geography. One of the perceived issues of advantage or disadvantage is the issue we alluded to before with the census. This is an interesting argument because it potentially affects folks in every state. We've already established that the Electoral College system allocates electoral votes based on the results of each decennial census. I have not said that word out loud. I just realized. After each decennial census, all 435 members of the House of Representatives are redistributed among the states. Some states gain representatives, others lose them, and some remain unchanged. These gains or losses lead to comparable adjustments to state electoral vote allocations following the census. For example, following the 2010 census, Texas gained four House seats in its electoral vote allocation, uh, bringing it up from 34 to 38. New York lost two seats and its electoral vote allocation fell from 31 to 29. This reallocation of electoral votes is reflected in the first presidential election following each census. Uh, for instance, reallocations from the 2010 census were in place for the 2012 and 2016 elections and will continue for this, the 2020 election. And then this election, this census rather, uh, will impact the 2024 and 2028 election. Supporters of direct election note that reapportionment of electors objectively fails to account for significant population shifts that often occur during the course of a decade. This means that the allocation of electoral votes for the 2020 election reflects the 2010 population distribution among the states and makes no provision for changes during that intervening decade. So states that saw increased populations during the current decade won't see those increases translate into more presidential electors until 2024. Until then, they will arguably be underrepresented in presidential elections, while states whose populations fell will continue to be overrepresented. The refresh rate is very slow. Yes. I mean, 10 years is a long time, yo. 
yeah, a lot happens in 10 years. I've single-handedly, in the, since the, the last census, reduced the population of Missouri because I moved out. That's true. Okay, so we're going to keep going on this, comp- the composition of the state, right? So since the composition of the Electoral College is partially based on state representation in Congress, some detractors maintain that it's inconsistent with the one-person, one-vote principle, right? So... You see, during the Constitutional Convention, the delegates agreed on a compromise plan whereby less populous states were assured of a minimum of three electoral votes based on their two senators and one representative, regardless of state population. But that means that since electoral college delegations are equal to the combined total of each state's Senate and House delegation, voters in the less populous ones cast more electoral votes per voter than those in highly populated states. For example, in 2016, voters in Wyoming, which is the least populous state, or at least it was according to the 2010 census, cast 255,849 popular votes, and that equaled to three electoral votes for president, which that roughly comes out to one electoral vote for every 85,283 voters. By comparison, Californians cast 14,181,595 popular votes for their 55 electoral votes, which equaled out to one electoral vote for every 257,847 voters. So it's not exact math, but we're looking at something that's close to one-third the popular vote cost for every electoral vote. I think that's a good way to describe it in Wyoming than you have in California. So, uh, another way to put it, I suppose, is that for every vote that a Wyomingan, Wyomingan, a person from Wyoming cast, (laughs) I've never heard, what do they call people from Wyoming? Wyomingan, Wyomingan, I don't know. Anyway, for every vote, that a person from Wyoming casts is roughly equivalent to like four votes that a person from California casts. Yeah. It was like 3.6, I think, something like that. Something another like way, that. another way to put it is in order to gain an electoral vote in California, somebody, a population the size, actually slightly larger than Wyoming had to vote <laughs> in, yeah. in California for every, for every one electoral vote there. I'm, you know, because of how many people write it. I'm just saying it, I think they get the point. Moving on. Yeah, the idea is you get more bang for your buck if you're voting in Wyoming than if you're voting in California. That's right. Theoretically, if I bought all of the land in Wyoming, I would get three electoral votes for my one popular election vote. Note to self, buy Wyoming. Buy Wyoming, right? Easy peasy. I just, I like to use that example because it kind of really illustrates how the Electoral College favors landowners still. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Because land doesn't vote, people do, but it doesn't matter. I get three votes if I own Wyoming and kick everyone out. If it gives a small state an advantage, a lot of people would think that the natural corollary to that is that it disadvantages large states. But that's not true either. (laughs) (laughs) Populous, highly populous states also have an advantage because they control the largest blocks of electoral votes. 
So in combination with the general ticket winner-take-all system, where the winner of the popular vote in a state takes all of the electoral votes in that same state, some argue that voters in these states have an advantage because the large blocks of electoral votes they control have greater ability to influence the outcome of presidential elections. To use the last example, a voter in Wyoming in 2016 could influence only three electoral votes, 1.1% of the 270 electoral votes needed to win the presidency. So yeah, they get three votes, but it's only three. However, a voter in California could influence 55 electoral votes in the same presidential election. That is 20.4% of the votes needed to gain an electoral college majority. This is crazy. One state is one-fifth of the total votes needed to win I know. the election. It really calls into question the idea that winning the Electoral College requires a candidate to be a national president, right? <gasps> like, they don't have to build much of a coalition if 20% of what they need can be divided by 50.5% mm-hmm. of a state population. Right. You don't... only have to win half. Yeah. Don't get ahead of us there, okay? That's, I know. That goes, I that know. goes later on in the podcast. <clears throat> Right. We're still talking about the Electoral College right now. Exactly. Dear listeners, though, I'm going to pause here for a second to just illustrate that this is why, even though we do our best to present sound statistics in our in our podcasts and in our research, statistics are highly interpretable, right? So all of these arguments against the Electoral College based on these perceived advantages use statistics. And they use the same numbers. They're all drawing from the same pool of numbers. But when you look at things from one perspective, you can you can interpret the numbers in a way that makes your case. So always, always, always go out there. Chase down the statistics. Don't believe every number that you read. There's some really great memes out there about correlational statistics. But just know that all of these are potential arguments against the Electoral College using the same populations of people. Okay, so another theory centers on a possible advantage enjoyed by ethnic minority voters. According to this particular argument, minority voters, primarily African Americans, Latinos, and Jews, tend to be concentrated in populous states with large electoral college delegations. So by virtue of this concentration, and in reference to the last advantage that we discussed, These groups are said to exert greater influence over the outcomes in these states because their voting patterns tend to favor candidates whose policies they perceive to be in their own interest, thus helping win the states and their electoral votes for these candidates. Now, again, we're not going to touch on the potentiality of racist and stereotypical thinking that is embedded in this argument. No, black people vote as one single block, obviously. Obviously, didn't you know? They're a monolithic voting block. Sorry. Like, I'm going to get out my 10-foot pole and still not touch this, except to say, I I couldn't help myself, right? I know, I just started it out too. (laughs) (laughs) These these minority voters are not a monolith. Not every person of a particular ethnicity or sexual identity or gender is going to agree on which policies are in their interest. 
That's why you have coalitions of women for Trump and black voters for Trump, but you also have conservative Christians for Joe Biden, right? I'm not here to debunk this theory. I'm just here to tell you very intelligent listeners that there are still people who believe that this is a thing. An important thing, yeah. It actually gets played a lot in Florida with, I think, 29 electoral votes this year. Uh, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but there is a hard appeal to uh, Cubans. It doesn't make the national uh, you know, campaign stump speeches, but you know, discussions of how they have, how one candidate has hurt Cuba or helped Cuba or done this or done, ugh. Just because Cubanos are considered the swing voters in a swing state really interesting and yeah there's also another advantage (laughs) i know i know these are these are absurd there is another advantage called the non-citizen advantage which takes a minute to tease out it's generally accepted that states with high non-citizen populations may also get heavier consideration when it comes to electoral votes this is because except for the two senatorial electors A state's electoral vote allocation depends on the number of representatives in Congress appointed to it. And again, a state's electoral vote is based on its total population of residents as reported in the census. And finally, the census does not just count citizens. It counts non-citizens as well. So it follows that states that have high numbers of non-citizen residents counted in the census, enjoy a bias in the allocation of both representatives and electoral votes. Critics of the current method have argued that counting non-citizens for the purposes of apportionment of representatives and presidential electors provides an unfair advantage to states with large non-citizen populations. That's what I just said. I just reset it. What I want to drive home and what I want the listeners to consider is... Remember when the Trump administration was lobbying to have a citizenship question added to the 2020 census? Think about that. This gets a little conspiratorial. I'm not going to lie. Right. There's not a lot of hard evidence supporting this, but just think about this. This is my this is what I personally believed that to be a setup for. Um, The idea behind that push was to exclude non-citizens from population counts for the apportionment of both representatives and electoral votes, especially since we know non-citizens tend to lean more liberal. But again, not commenting here, just explaining. So, you know, fulfill the census. We now learn that California's population has 5 million um, non-citizen residents. And... Therefore, we are going to subtract 5 million from California's total electoral representation count or allocation, apportionment, right? Which means California might actually end up losing electors instead of gaining them. Just it's fair. food for thought. That is kind of what I saw happening and why there was such a hubbub about it. A 2012 Washington Post article discussing this alleged bias concluded that 
due to large concentrations of non-citizens, California gained five electors from the 2010 reapportionment that it would not have received if representatives and electoral votes were allocated according to citizen population rather than resident population. According to this same calculation, Texas gained two additional electors and New York, Florida, and Washington each gained one because representatives are apportioned according to population. Conversely, the author calculated that Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Michigan, Missouri, Montana, Ohio, Oklahoma, and Pennsylvania each lost one elector due to the non-citizen population advantage. Um, I want to make something very clear here because I'm afraid that people who are listening will hear non-citizen and interpret that to mean, quote, illegal aliens. Right. But that is not necessarily true. Non-citizens can be uh, visa holders, people here on school visas, work visas. Um, all they have to do is live in the state. And those people still pay taxes on things that they buy. Um, to name one, one example of the taxes they pay. They still use resources from the state. They are relevant to the population considerations of a state and therefore I think necessary to include in the census count because one of the things the census does is show the US government, the, the federal government, how to allocate resources and non-citizens need to have resources too. Exactly. So don't hear non-citizen and think illegals. It just means they literally aren't a US citizen. And, and I mean... I'm not a fan of slippery slope logic, right? We're not saying it's doom and gloom, and if that question had been added to the census, then we would very quickly return to a system where the only people who mattered in government were land-owning white men. Um, but there are a lot of things to be considered when you exclude everyone who doesn't fit the criteria of a voter from having representation in your government system. Yeah. And things like things like radical change don't normally happen overnight. They start in little tiny bite-sized chunks with, well, we are going to make this reasonable argument that we should exclude uh, non-citizens from the census count, which I think appeals to a lot of people. They can understand, oh yeah, they don't vote. Why would we include them in the census without fully thinking through what that means? And it seems reasonable at the time. And the slow march towards societal decay takes one more step. So just exactly. be vigilant of things like that. It's not a slippery slope, but it is definitely a large staircase by which we can descend one step after the other if we are not careful. Okay, so another alleged advantage or bias of the Electoral College centers on differing rates of voter participation in the states. Neil Pierce and Lawrence Longley writing in The People's President suggested that voters in states that have lower rates of participation may enjoy an advantage because it takes fewer popular votes per elector to win the state and all of its electoral votes. For example, in the 2016 election, Hawaii, with four electoral votes, had the lowest rate of voter participation. 
42.2% of eligible voters participated, and they cast a total of 428,937 votes for president. That figure equals roughly 107,234 votes for each elector. By comparison, Minnesota, with 10 electoral votes, had the highest rate of participation. Go Minnesota, my home state. With 74% of eligible voters who cast 2,944,813 votes for president, which equals roughly 294,481 votes per elector. This kind of goes back to that whole population advantage situation, except we're looking at the number of people who do vote. Participate, yeah. Yeah. Um, And so the idea, again, is that you, if you are voting in a state with lower voter turnout, you get more bang for your voting buck. Yeah. We've thrown a lot of numbers out there. It basically boils down to, there are several arguments that show or support or claim that the Electoral College has a few ways to take advantage of voting populations to maximize the impact of the vote, the impact of the Electoral College, and minimize the voice of the people. That's really what it boils Mm -hmm. down to. And if you think for a second that political strategists for every campaign out there are not running every single one of these advantages, trying to figure out which states are the most important for them to win, not which people they want to influence or not, how can they get everyone to see their benefit, but which states are strategically the most important, you're crazy. Not that I'm calling you crazy. (laughs) You're very intelligent. You are really eager to get to the part of this podcast where we talk about uh, alternatives at the direct election. (laughs) So far, you've hit on like three of the points. So the final bias argument, uh, but not necessarily the final argument against the Electoral College, is this thing. It's called the so-called Electoral College Lock, a perceived phenomenon identified in the late 1960s that critics argued provides a long-term election advantage to the candidates of a particular party, originally to Republicans and later to Democrats, and then it looks like we're swinging back to the Republicans. The lock was loosely defined as a tendency of the system to favor presidential candidates of one party over another. It was said to operate because a block of states possessing a large, sometimes decisive, number of electoral votes could be reliably expected to vote in successive elections for the candidates of the political party that tended to dominate those states. So California is the easiest example of this. It is considered reliably democratic or a blue state in presidential elections, one that dependently delivers its 55 electoral votes to the Democratic Party presidential candidates. On the other side of the coin, Texas is similarly cited as a red state that reliably produces its 36 electoral votes for Republican presidential candidates. So there are other, you know, sure things, surefire votes states out there, but those are the two big ones. Yeah, and that's why it's such a big deal when a candidate flips a state. When something happens that nobody expects, and for example, if Texas were to go blue this election cycle, like that would... Be crazy. Yeah, that would be a huge deal. Yeah. 
So perhaps the most discussed issue with the Electoral College has to do with the general ticket or the winner-take-all system. This means that for the most part, previously mentioned exceptions notwithstanding, that when a candidate wins the popular vote in a state, they win all of the electors for that state. Electoral College defenders claim the general ticket system's multiplier effect tends to reinforce the overall popular election results by magnifying the winning ticket's margin and to deter frivolous challenges to state-by-state -state results. However, critics regularly point out that it can lead, and has recently, to the election of presidents and vice presidents who win a majority of the electoral vote, but not the popular vote. This occurrence has often been called an electoral college misfire, particularly among reform advocates. Uh, this wrong winner scenario has occurred four times in the nation's history, in 1876, in 1888, in 2000, and most recently in 2016. In another knock for the winner-take-all system, critics argue that by awarding all of a state's electoral votes to the winner, regardless of the closeness of the popular vote results, the general ticket system essentially discounts the votes of all the citizens who preferred the candidates receiving fewer votes. The highest levels of disenfranchisement occur in these battleground states where elections are decided. In 2016, Trump took Michigan by somewhere between 10,000 and 13,000 votes, which roughly comes out to one quarter of 1%. And yet, he won all of the state's electoral votes and millions of votes for Clinton were effectively discarded. And the same happened in red and blue states all over the country. And this is like the one time that we're going to talk modification here simply because it's already happening. One potential modification to this process is this district system, the system that the founding fathers originally intended for how the Electoral College works. And it's similar to what Maine and Nebraska currently do. Under this process, each electoral vote is assigned to a congressional district and awarded to the candidate that wins the popular vote in that district. And then the state's two senatorial votes are awarded to the candidate that wins the popular vote in the state. The district system supporters claim that it, it better reflects the geographical differences in candidate support throughout a state, thus delivering us with an electoral vote that more accurately represents the preferences of voters. However, some criticize the district system on the ground that adding the senatorial electors to the statewide winner's total has much the same effect of disadvantaging the losing candidates and their supporters. Right, because they're not geographically centered. They just kind of go to the winner. I think what I'd like to do is cover the, 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 the counterpoint to the electoral college system uh, which is the direct election idea. And um, then we'll we'll talk about how the Electoral College might impact this election happening in, in by the time this comes out, eight days, <laughs> before we wrap it up. The direct election system is is one of the solutions provided for the problems caused by the electoral college system especially considering we just spent god knows how long talking about all the problems with the electoral college system why does it even still exist is a very common question and why don't we why don't we do away with it 
That is a huge question. <laughs> and you can kind of see the like the the peaks of the icebergs of why that is such a complicated topic in what we've talked about already. But because we are awesome, we have distilled the gist of the arguments for and against a direct election system for you, the listener. This would basically be throwing out the electoral college, one person, one vote, popular vote is who takes it. <sighs> okay, so we're going to start with the arguments for this idea of a direct election. Perhaps the fundamental contemporary criticism of the founders' creation of the Electoral College is this big philosophical question right here. Proponents of change maintain that the Electoral College system is intrinsically undemocratic. It provides for an indirect election of the president and the vice president. We've covered this like nine times at this point. But just so you hear it. And these critics assert that this is an 18th century anachronism that dated from a time when communications were poor and the literacy rate was much lower and the nation had yet to develop the durable and sophisticated and inclusive democratic political system that it now enjoys. They maintain that only a direct popular election of the president and the vice president is consistent with modern democratic values and practice. And, indeed, the average American citizen in the 21st century has access to, and actually is, far more educated than the average American citizen in the 18th century. Despite appearances, sometimes. And regardless, opponents of the Electoral College system argue that it does not accurately reflect the desires of the Founding Fathers when they designed it. As we heard in that quote earlier, the point was to balance the interests of the minority populations with the will of the majority. It was not to provide a path for a minority rule. In situations where the winner of the popular vote loses the presidency, this is nothing but minority rule, especially as the margin of victory increases for the popular candidate. This is, plainly, by definition, undemocratic. And one of the major failings of the Electoral College system is the fact that the winner-take-all system does not necessarily reflect that will of the people. In a hypothetical state with 20 electoral votes, the winner of the popular vote gets all 20, even if they won the vote by 1%. It's like we talked about in Michigan. The original iteration of the district representation was meant to address this problem so that electors were essentially assigned proportionally. Someone may get 11 electors from this hypothetical state, but their opponent will still get a not insignificant 9. By following a direct election system, advocates argue that elections would be simpler and more democratic, and that the popular winner would always win every election, and therefore every vote would carry the same weight in the election, no matter where it was cast and no state would be advantaged or disadvantaged because individual states would not matter. A candidate need only turn out the most votes that they possibly can. Another benefit of the direct election system is the change in focus of campaigns. Elections where the winning candidate loses the national popular vote usually result from the winning candidate winning a narrow electoral victory in very specific states, while the losing candidate built a larger margin in states that they did win. So 
candidate A, the less popular but winning candidate, won 270 electoral votes by winning the popular vote by, say, 0.5% or less, like maybe one quarter of 1%, in a few critical states, while more popular but losing candidate, candidate B, won the popular vote in more states with fewer electoral votes. Say she won it by 2.4% or something crazy like that, just pulling the number out of my hat. The losing candidate will have millions more votes, almost 3 million more votes, but not enough electoral votes. So tactically, what this means is that a presidential campaign need only focus their efforts on a few key states to win the presidency. This completely flies in the face of the argument that the Electoral College causes presidents to appeal to the nation at large. And it is demonstrably false, in fact, that claim that the presidential campaign has to appeal to every American in every state. If you've been paying attention to the 2020 election, these key battleground states, swing states, these words, they may sound familiar to you. This is exactly what we've been seeing playing play out. So in the current election, more than one billion, with a B, dollars has been spent on TV ads. That billion dollars is concentrated in 13 states. 13 out of 50. Of those 13 states, and that $1 billion, a staggering $882 million is being invested in only six crucial battleground states. Yes, nine out of every $10 is being invested in Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Arizona. So if we take election investment, ad investment spending as a proxy for campaign focus, which it has been used as for every election I've been alive for, um, you can kind of see the campaigns don't care about Kansas. They don't care about Idaho or Connecticut. They're not spending money there. Candidates spend their time focusing on these swing states. Since 48 states give their electors to the winner of the popular vote in the state, it does no good for a Republican to campaign in, say, California. They pretty much write it off from the beginning. No matter how many votes they get there, they can pretty safely assume the state's 55 electors are going to go to the Democratic candidate. Campaigns, therefore, just ignore it. They might show an ad there. They might have a stop there. But out of the two years on the trail that they're going to be working, that is going to be at the bottom of their list. Maybe 5% of their effort will go there at best. As far as the Republican candidate is concerned, it doesn't really even exist. It doesn't matter. The benefit of the direct election system, then, would be to force or, or maybe encourage campaigns to focus on turning out the vote wherever they could get it, instead of focusing on a shrinking group of battleground states and ignoring the so-called safe states or locked states. So even if you lose California to the Democrat, if you manage to turn out one million more voters than four years prior, 
that could make a difference for the Republican candidate. Likewise, you'd see efforts by the Democratic candidate in places like Georgia and Alabama, these, these safe red states. Who knows what kind of political change we'd actually see if candidates focus their attention on opposite color states. Be crazy. I just, I mean, I know in Missouri, when I lived there, a number of my friends, now this was, this was beef prior to 2016 when when presidential elections, when elections at large didn't feel quite so personal and quite so in your living room, um, yeah. where it didn't really matter who won, you could kind of count on America to, to do America things, you know? <laughs> um, but I know that many, many liberal Democratic voters just didn't vote in Missouri because they're like, my vote doesn't matter here. Yeah. You know? I can go, I can wait in line, I can spend my two hours of the day getting that done, and nothing about it will matter. So why should I do exactly. it? I mean, and that's a perfect segue, right? So one corollary to this idea of a direct election system is that this national popular vote would encourage higher voter turnout. In the current system, it doesn't matter how much a candidate wins or loses a state by. It's winner takes all regardless, again, except for Maine and Nebraska. But you'll notice they are not on that list. They're not on that list of swing states. So one could argue that it probably doesn't even really matter in the first place. However, with a national popular vote, just winning 51% of a state isn't enough. You have to work for as many voters as possible everywhere because every single one of them counts. The broader the margin of victory, the more likely you are to be able to absorb a loss somewhere else. Or conversely, the narrower your loss margin, the more important your victory margin in another state becomes. Further, a national popular vote would encourage candidates to appeal to all voters, not just a certain block of voters in those key swing states. This is called sectionalism, and it's played a role in electing at least one U.S. president, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln won a majority of the Electoral College in his election, but he didn't receive a single vote in Virginia, and he wasn't even on the ballot in 10 states, and he won less than 40% of the overall popular vote. Modern elections see sectionalism in the form of appealing to Cuban Americans to vote in Florida by touting their support for the Cuban embargo, for example. That's what I was talking about earlier. Um... Another benefit of the national popular vote would be to address that congressional resolution to a tie, a deadlock. The national popular vote would head off that problem. Even if it's rare, right, it still exists. And again, on principle, it's, it's problematic. Um, in the unlikely event of a tie, remember, the selection of a president goes to the House and the Senate, president and vice president. Um, Thomas Jefferson himself did not like that particular peculiarity of the Electoral College system, writing, I have ever considered the constitutional mode of election ultimately by the legislature voting by states as the most dangerous blot on our Constitution, and one which some unlucky chance will someday hit. Jefferson hated this idea. <laughs> and... He feared the day when it happened, and it did happen. Um, 
a national popular vote would ensure that it was always the people who selected their president, not the politicians, not Washington. Imagine, if you will, a world in which the next president of the United States was elected by the current Congress. <sighs> Try to sleep. I shudder to think. Aye, aye, aye. Okay, so like we talked about earlier, one of the main arguments for the Electoral College was the continuation of our two-party system. This also happens to be one of the arguments against maintaining the Electoral College as well. Um, our country was never supposed to operate on a two-party system. One of the most primary dissents against the idea of a two-party system comes from the Founding Fathers themselves. In his farewell address, George Washington warned the nation against hyperpartisanship, saying, The alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural to party dissension, which in different ages and in different countries has perpetuated the most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism. John Adams, George Washington's successor, wrote that a division of the Republic into two great parties is to be dreaded as the great political evil. If you, if you recall our recent history lesson, right, we know that the framers of our Constitution never intended for political parties to interfere with the system that they were creating. The degradation into a sharply divided two-party system is well documented, should you want to learn more. But I think the reasoning for concern with the way things work in the current political climate is well explained by author Lee Drutman in The Atlantic. He says, and this is a very extensive quote, This fundamentally breaks the system of separation of powers and checks and balances that the framers created. Under a unified government, congressional co-partisans have no incentive to check the president. Their electoral success is tied to his success and popularity. And then under a divided government, congressional opposition partisans have no incentive to work with the president. Their electoral success is tied to his failure and unpopularity. This is not a system of bargaining and compromise, but one of capitulation and stonewalling. Congressional stonewalling, in turn, leads presidents to do more by executive authority, further strengthening the power of the presidency. A stronger presidency creates higher stakes presidential elections, which exacerbates hyperpartisanship, which drives even more gridlock. Meanwhile, as hyperpartisanship has intensified legislative gridlock, more and more important decisions are left to the judiciary to resolve. This makes the stakes of Supreme Court nominations even higher, especially with lifetime tenure, leading to nastier confirmation battles and thus higher stakes elections. You can see our current political cycle just spelled out right there in that one section. But a direct popular vote for president would provide a means to rectify this problem. Direct popular vote gives incentives for third and fourth and fifth party candidates to run. I mean, my personal opinion is that we need to break up the two-party system because there's no way that those two parties, especially the way they stand today, accurately represent the ideals of the people especially when you have specific blocks of voters who only vote for a certain party due to a single issue, whatever that issue may be. And, and they may continue to vote for that party because of that one issue, even if they disagree with everything else that that party stands for. 
Some plans call for a national popular vote to only require a plurality of votes, meaning that the more candidates are in the race, the more incentive there is for even more candidates to enter the race, thereby diluting the voting pool and reducing the chances of any given candidate of reaching a plurality. That's a fair argument. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that may, I totally understand why people would be concerned about having so many options that nobody, no clear winner was decided. But Exactly. And, and we have a hard enough time with a presidential election where the, the candidate wins the popular vote by 2% and loses the electoral college. Can you imagine the state of things if the winning candidate only got 11% of the popular vote in the United States? It's not a simple problem. But one easy solution, and one that Maine has begun to implement this year, is the implementation of an instant runoff or ranked choice voting system. So here, voters rank their choices for president in order of preference. If no single candidate surpasses the threshold needed to win, the votes that went to the least popular candidate are then redistributed according to the ranking of the person who cast their vote. This would ensure that any candidate selection by national popular vote met that predetermined minimum threshold, and it would limit third-party candidates from entering simply to dilute the voting pool. So I just want to simplify that really quick because it sounds harder than it is, but all it is is if you have three candidates, instead of just voting for one, let's say it's Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and Joe Jorgensen, which is what we have this year. So instead of saying, Joe Biden, I want to vote for him, you would put a, a, a one by Joe Biden. And then a two by Donald Trump. And then a three by Joe Jorgensen, right? And let's say that neither uh, Donald Trump nor Joe Biden came away uh, with the plurality of the votes. They didn't meet the threshold needed to win the election. And we could set it at 50% because I think that's what it should be. Um, so that would, that would mean that Joe Jorgensen, all of her votes, all the people who voted for her, those votes would get split up. And so whoever put Joe Jorgensen first on their ballot, right, it would drop to the next choice, whoever they wrote second. So some of those vo votes would go to Biden and some would go to Trump, the Joe Jorgensen voter's second choice, basically. So this kind of helps balance um, the idea that a, a, a third party vote is a wasted vote right now. And mm -hmm. it gives people the chance to express, you know, well... I want this third party candidate, but then we can see in the final voting, you know, voter count that they only got 8% of the vote or something. It's like, ah, that sucks. At least I didn't throw away my vote because I still got my second choice because all of my exactly. votes got directed to them or my third choice, God forbid. So. Right. And so like, like we've been discussing, the Electoral College is widely credited with upholding, if not creating, our, our current two-party system. So it makes sense then that those who would do away with that bipartisan factionality would look to modify or eliminate the electoral system that perpetuates it. Um, again, we, we don't have time to get into the pluses and minuses of a two-party political system or what it might look like if the United States had multiple parties. But suffice it to say that just as those, there are those who support the electoral college system because of the two-party dynamic, there are those who oppose it for the same reason. So let's talk a little bit about the arguments against a direct election. Okay, let's move on. No, um, so there's, there's actually not 
many because as much evidence as it would appear that there is for the benefits of a direct vote system, not everyone is in favor of the idea, obviously. Those who support the current electoral college system, or even another representative system, believe that a direct vote system would be detrimental to our country. Now, all of the arguments specifically cited as against the system of direct election are kind of in reality a argument for the electoral college system. So arguments for the electoral college system are against the popular election system and, and vice versa. Um, they suggest that a lot of the arguments suggest that it would undermine our political system by making it easier for a candidate to win the presidency, um, especially without the, the support of a majority of Americans. They say that a candidate would no longer be required to seek support through the country. Instead, they would simply have to get enough votes to acquire a bare majority over the other candidates. Um, this could be accomplished by focusing only on the most populous areas of the nation, completely ignoring the needs of the less populated, populated regions entirely. This could mean even less power and a weaker voice for some minority groups, including racial or religious minorities, and those in rural populations and small states. We kind of have hashed over all of these arguments on both sides of it, and I think we've addressed it. Um, in addition, people against propose that the danger and likelihood of constant recounts in presidential elections would become almost inevitable because a popular vote system would have no mechanism to guarantee that the winner of an election had received a majority of the vote, as the Electoral College does. Plus, also, since the Electoral College is based on a state-by-state -state vote, recounts would not make nearly as much of a difference as they would in a popular vote election. A popular vote election process could mean heavily contested elections every four years, which would demean and tear apart the American democratic system of government, and I can't believe I got through that entire section because it sounds ludicrous at this point in the podcast because, like, all of these points, if you're honestly, this is opinion, If I feel like if you're honestly making these points, you're either doing it in bad faith because you have been paid to argue for the Electoral <laughs> College or against the direct election system, or you haven't done your research. Because the, especially the one, the points about the Electoral College guaranteeing that the winner receives the majority of the vote, twice in my lifetime, that hasn't happened. So I don't know what they're on, whoever they is, when they make that point, but they're clearly ignoring numerous elections in the last 20 years. <laughs> and we've... <laughs> Well, it presents a false dichotomy, right? Yes, You're either thank saying you, you have thank the you. electoral college as it stands, or you have a system in which any candidate can run, and all you have to get is a simple majority of the popular vote. Like, which is baloney. I mean, you can set up a system like we talked about, the ranked vote system, which yeah. makes it to where you still have to have 50% of the vote. It just eliminates the lowest vote getter round after round, until somebody has 50% of the vote. I'm pretty sure that's what Australia does. If we have listeners in Australia, will you please email me and can 
like confirm that because I've read it a yes. couple times. Right. I mean, what you it's kind of like it's like saying if you are not a Republican, then you're a Democrat. And if you're not a Democrat, you're a Republican. <sighs> and it's there are so many people and so many systems and so many options that exist between the two spectrums that you don't have to support a direct election system to think the electoral college needs modification. Right. And you do not have to, to, I don't remember what I just said. You don't, you made a good point. You just, because (laughs) you are against the electoral college doesn't mean you're for the direct election. Just because you're for direct election uh, doesn't mean you're absolutely against electoral college. There are middle grounds. We did not cover them all because this thing's already going to be, over two hours long. Extra beefy holiday special for you guys. Um, the holiday's Halloween, but, <laughs> you know. Look, listen, if the shoe fits. It's still, a, it's still a holiday, dang it. Um, we'll call it, not beefy, it's a king size. This is the king size candy bar of episodes for, yes, it for is. you folks. We are that lady on the block. Um, Woo. I'm just... Ah. Let's uh, let's wrap this let's wrap this bad boy up. Let's bring it home. Okay. Um, so, how? Tell me how, Robin. Tell me how the electoral college might affect this election. This is the part of the test that nobody likes. It's not multiple choice. It's not even short answer. It's where you have to take everything that you've just learned and apply it. Okay. Boo. So. Now that we know what we know about the Electoral College, we can process through this all together. There are several ways that we know that the Electoral College and its processes might possibly affect the outcome of the election in just over a week when you're listening to this. Okay, these are not um, wills, these are mights, but we're, we're applying our knowledge here. First and foremost, we know that there's a real pop- possibility that the popular vote and the electoral vote could yield different results twice in the last 16 years, half of the last four elections, okay? Right now, the polls put Biden ahead of Trump in popular opinion, but there are some scenarios in which, because of this winner-take-all system, Trump earns enough electoral votes to secure the presidency again. If you want to get a hands-on look at how the numbers would need to combine, um, 270towin.com has a great interactive model that helps voters understand how electoral numbers combine. Uh, 538Politics has a cool website that runs a bunch of different prediction models and is updated every day with the most likely scenarios that come out. We know that this will quite probably be a very tightly contested election in which the votes of millions of Americans will essentially be discarded in the name of procedure. Um, And we can rightly expect that some of those voters will be frustrated and feel cheated out of their voice in the election. We also know that the Constitution does not explicitly outline how each state allots its electors or provide that electors must align their vote with the popular vote in the state. So there's a possibility that we will see a faithless electors scenario um, coming up during this election. You know, it could be that Biden wins Mississippi, but the electors there go, nah, and vote for Trump, or vice versa, right? 
And that could also lead to another case in which the Supreme Court determines the constitutionality of laws that bind electors. If you keep in mind that the Supreme Court might be required to determine who wins this election, suddenly the very hypocritical ramming through of Amy Coney Barrett (laughs) makes a lot more sense. It does. And finally, though, again, this is the most unlikely of the potential scenarios, we could see an election in which neither candidate wins a strong enough majority of electoral votes, and we have a contingent election. I mean, if I was going to put my money on an election in which that might happen, it might be this one. 2020, baby. This is it. Right? This is it. So what what, what does that mean? What does that mean? The newly elected or re-elected members of the House and the Senate, who some of whom will spend their first week, second week in Washington deciding the president and the vice president of the United States, will have a direct hand in choosing both our president and our vice president. Interestingly enough, we kind of hinted at it earlier, should the House and the Senate fall to different majority parties, we could see a president... And a VP from different parties. Could you imagine? I'm just trying to like picture President Joe Biden, Vice President Mike Pence, or President Trump, Vice President Kamala Harris. <laughs> it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Oh my gosh. Oh it could no. be a complete mess. Uh, I mean, but I'm sure that there is an argument for it being a situation in which we can pioneer a new era of cooperation across party lines in the United States. I'm putting Oh, you're putting so optimistic. So optimistic. I think what would bring us together in the uh, the Trump president, Harris vice president uh, scenario would be the bounty of amazing gifts that we would get from oh. all of all of Harris's airtime. Oh my gosh. And watching the president do the president things. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Enough of that. There's a lot to consider here as you take yourself to whatever polling place is most appropriate or drop your ballot in the mailbox or Dropbox because you are going to do that, American you listeners. Are. We've had some international listeners. Please don't vote in American elections. We already have enough problems with the Russians. And no offense to any Russian listeners we have, which I don't think we have any. Uh, (laughs) But seriously, um, in one fashion, you are casting a vote that represents your personal preference for president and vice president of the United States. But you are also casting a vote to influence one portion of the electoral votes that will actually determine the chief executive officers of the United States. You are also casting votes down ballot that will be likely more critical in the immediate months after this election. So do your research, love it or hate it, Agree or disagree, the Electoral College is the system we have right now, and we have to work within it. So go out there, cast your vote, 
not only for the highest office, for, but for the people on the ballot who speak for you in Congress, who make big decisions for your state, who control local policies and procedures. Because as important as the presidential election is, and it is, it is important, the people who most directly influence your life as an American, they are down ballot. They are the reason that we have this podcast. So that when you do vote, you can go into that booth and keep in mind the topics that we have talked about here. The, the topics that we hope we have spurred you to research further or that we have brought some sense of enlightenment to you on. Uh, I know I will for certain be thinking about a lot, of this, a lot of the things that we have researched here. I mean, gosh, we're on episode, I think this is nine. And uh, I, we were talking about this last night while we were doing some final research yeah. on this. this. This is nearly 200 pages now of of research that we've done we've got probably close to that in sources or more for all of this and um it's crazy it's a lot i did not expect this to be as um i don't know uh massive as it feels some of the times that we do this uh yeah but Regardless, I, I love it. I hope our listeners love it too. I hope you share it with your friends. Please share it with your friends. Robin, how can their friends find us? Yes, okay. So if you appreciate the fact that we write essentially a master's level research paper every time we break something down for you, and you appreciate not having to do that extensive research yourself in order to better understand a topic or if you hate everything that we have to say <laughs> and you want other people to potentially agree with you how much you hate it. No, not really. Um, share this. Share this with your friends. Please, please. Tell please. people that you know who want to know more about things in general to listen. Tell them why you love our podcast. Um, tell them what it makes you think and how it makes you think. Tell us what it makes you think and how it makes you think. That'd be great. We would love to have a review from you if the podcast platform that you use makes space for those reviews. Um, you can find a link to that, a, a really handy app that takes you exactly the place that you need to go to leave us a review should your platform allow for those things on our Facebook page. Uh, right at the top, it's the pinned post. Our Facebook page is Fireside Breakdowns. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> I think we're the only ones on Facebook. Just pop that in the search bar, you'll find us. You'll find that link to leave us a review. You'll find a link to find us on your favorite podcast platform. And then you will also find links to really cool information that we find that reinforces the topic, that gives you something else to learn, that uh, shares an interesting piece of information we maybe didn't have a chance to cover in the podcast. So we would love to hear from you in the same way that you hear from us every week. Uh, you can also email us. Uh, yes, you can. You can email us. There are so many ways to talk to us, you guys. Yeah. Firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. Yes. We do check that. I get a little blip on my phone every time uh, somebody sends junk mail to that email box. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So please. Yeah. Okay. We would greatly appreciate that. We really would. We would love to hear from you. 
So. Good news. Good Tell news. Me something good. This is how we wrap up these episodes now. So, we are still, as of recording right now, 12 days away from Election Day. But, as of this morning, more than 42 million votes have already been cast. That's something like 89% of the total votes cast in the 2016 election. This is according to the Washington Post. Amidst all of the controversy and a global pandemic, Americans are fighting to make sure their voices are heard. If you have voted early or mailed in your ballot, please accept this virtual and non-virus transmitting fist bump. Thank you so much. The rest of you, we will see you at the polls on November 3rd, and we will see you back here in two weeks. Until then, take care of yourself. <laughs>